Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another uh, episode of uh, Industry Standard with me, uh, Barry Katz. Uh, I want to thank all of you for all your emails and your notes to me. It's incredible. I mean, I, 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 I can't even begin to tell you the support. You guys have been just amazing and I very unexpected for me. Um, today, I'm really excited. Uh, my guest, uh, Dick Glover is just a power player in the business, and he's laughing about it. But what I normally like to do right here is sort of tell a story that kind of relates in some way to uh, the guest that I have. Uh, a lot of people uh, might not know your history or your trajectory, but one of the things that uh, this man we're about to interview uh, uh, did was he worked at NASCAR for several years. And so... I happen to be very close to NASCAR in a few different ways because uh, I've been involved in helping to, I guess you'd say, produce some of the award shows or, or book some of the talent or have some of the hosts or and comedians during the shows. And a friend of mine uh, got a job there uh, about a decade ago. And his uh, responsibility there was to make sure that the entertainment portion of the industry merged with the NASCAR side of the world. And the difficult thing here uh, when Dick was there was to try to figure out a way how you could merge the entertainment business with NASCAR, which basically was like this, this 
city or amongst itself. It was like a, a NASCAR was like a world. It's, it was his own world. And the important thing was Dick and the initiative of, of uh, my friend who worked there and a number of people was to figure out how to integrate this in. And now keep in mind, there have been award shows, these televised award shows. Some weren't televised for many, many, many years. I believe NASCAR started in 48, and I believe they started doing these award shows maybe in the 70s. And here it was, 2004, and never once in the history of a NASCAR award show had there ever been a comedian, ever been anybody doing anything funny, because they were very, very nervous about what somebody might say on camera or even off camera about their sport, their fans, the people that were involved in what it took to get it for. It was like the elephant in the room of what fans were like of NASCAR. And we can only imagine the jokes that people might make about the fans and the people who drove the race cars. And so they were fearful of having any kind of comedian there at all to rock the boat or anything of that nature it was known through the hallways of nascar in private areas of the hallways that the focus and the mantra of nascar fans was we want fans from drool to drool which basically meant we want to be able to have babies and we want to have people with four green tennis balls on their walker going through the stands. And when Dick came in, if I'm not mistaken, one of his mantras was, you know, we have to be a little more aggressive. We have to take risks. And we have to figure out a way to sort of poke fun at ourselves and sort of merge within this world that's now becoming more comedy-centric and comedy and entertainment and television and film. And if we do that, we can sort of put it all together. And I, with the six degrees of separation, was thrown and thrust into this because uh, I represent Jay Moore. And at the time, Jay was uh, doing a lot of movies. He'd probably done over 20 movies with probably 10 different people who won Academy Awards. He'd done Jerry Maguire with Tom Cruise. He'd done Picture Perfect with um, Jennifer Aniston. He, he'd done uh, Pay It Forward with uh, Kevin Spacey and Helen Hunt. And, and the list went on and on. And he was also a very, very proficient and accomplished stand-up comedian. He'd done an hour special. And... You know, he just started, I believe, Last Comic Standing, so he was hosting. So he had a lot of things going on, but he was uh, sort of one of the few stand-up comedians uh, in the world at that time that was able to book significant acting jobs. He'd done a lot of television, a lot of film, but he could also do a reality show like Last Comic Standing. He could host his television show. He could go on talk shows and promote on radio. And I believe the mantra from Dick and his group were that, hey, here's a guy who's perfect. He's a little edgy. He's huggable and lovable, but he's got that edge to him. And he's the kind of guy we can get him in there. And in one fell swoop, we can get a comedy guy in there who can actually 
mix and integrate entertainment, film people, television people, and stand-up comedy with NASCAR. So, uh, as usual, when I book a date or I do something, you know, you get a contract that comes to you. So the contract comes to me, and in this contract has language for a show that I've never seen before in a contract. This contract has in bold, aerial black font all the things that Jay Moore cannot talk about. He cannot make redneck jokes. He cannot make offensive language towards drivers. He cannot talk about the lack of diversity in the sport. He couldn't make jokes about France or the France family that owned NASCAR. Couldn't make any jokes about sex, drugs, country music, southern jokes, fans with no teeth, uh, sponsors, or any jokes about the late Dick Trickle. And I was reading this, and I was like, I'd never read a contract before and was doubled over laughing so hard in my life. And I remember calling Jay and saying, are you okay with this? Because comedians, you tell a comedian not to do something, and that you might as well, you might as well just tell a comedian, please do that, and let me write it in blood. And so I told Jay, he said, no problem, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it, and I'll, I'll, I'll put it together. And... The award show was a, a way for, Jay was really proud of this show because he was going in, it was in New York, I believe, at the Waldorf Astoria, which is one of the classiest places ever. And the crowd was tense. They were tense because they'd never had this kind of, you know, uh, thing before. And they were worried about being poked and made fun of. And of course, Jay proceeded in this show and in many other shows that he did, he's done three other shows, and he's actually going to be hosting his fourth show um, this year to poke fun at the drivers. And when you're doing these shows, what happens is is that they have huge uh, screens in the venue, and they have cameramen that know when Jay is going to talk about Jeff Gordon or when he's going to talk about Jeff Burton or Dale Jr. or Kevin Harvick or you know, any of these people. And once he would shit on one of these people, the camera would go on them and it would be up on the screen. And if you've ever seen a roast on television before on Comedy Central, the worst thing that can happen to a comedy show is when somebody shits on somebody and then they cut to the picture of the person with their girlfriend or wife straight facing you, not laughing. But for some reason, Jay had a way of figuring out a way to shit on these people, and then he would shit on himself. And he's like, we'd be talking about somebody in the business of NASCAR. The crowd might go, ooh. And Jay would be like, well, what, did somebody hit a foul ball? Or he'd say uh, something like, what, is he here? And whenever he did a joke that was too far, like calling a group of drivers because of their haircuts, that they look like Peppermint Patty, or something like that, he would go back to the guy who was the chairman uh, who had a huge mustache and call him Mario from Donkey Kong or something like that. And any time he went after somebody who had the real money, 
who, as Chris Rock once said, uh, what's the difference between wealthy, wealthy and rich? Well, you know, Shaq is rich. Jerry Buss was wealthy. And everybody loved comedy around that. So after that event, which was primarily very well received, even though there were, I mean, there were jokes that killed, but there were also jokes that got oohs and ahs. But they immediately invited Jay back. But what happened was for Dick, it opened the doors up for something much bigger. And what he did uh, next was something that I would consider to be a huge holy shit moment. He decided, well, the next step is, now that we've gotten over this hurdle, let's figure out a way to get into the feature film business and get our brand out there in a way that's fun, that's unique, and that can spread the word of NASCAR. But Dick was a risk taker, and he came across a project uh, that people came to him with, I believe, called Talladega Nights, with Jimmy Miller producing it, uh, who uh, manages uh, a man, again, six degrees of separation, named Will Ferrell. And Dick read the script for this particular project, and it had a lot of stuff in the script that was horrifying to NASCAR. But Dick knew that if he could figure out a way to manipulate and navigate this script and this package out there in the world to his board of directors that were very, very conservative... If he could get this out there, this would be something that would be a huge thing for NASCAR and be a huge thing for the brand. That's something that people would be talking about for years and years to come. But there was a risk. The risk was, what happens if it doesn't do well? I mean, Will Ferrell did a movie earlier, a soccer movie, and with Jimmy Miller, and that did poorly. Uh, people from the sport of soccer, maybe they didn't want to rally around it. Maybe they did and didn't go well. And it didn't help the sport of soccer in our country. Could have hurt it. But Dick still pushed because he was a risk, risk taker. He pushed and pushed and pushed. And he was able to get the board of directors to agree to green light this movie and agree to have NASCAR be represented in Talladega Nights. And within that movie, there were a lot of stereotypes. There were a lot of jokes that were on the edge. There were many fights about certain content and things of that nature, and many discussions. But in the end, Dick knew that you have to take the piss out of yourself sometimes. And when you can shit on yourself a little bit, people rally around you and they love you more and they know that you're agreeing and you're showing a little bit of your faults a little bit of things that don't do well in your life or your world and I'll never forget watching that movie and and one of the scenes that always resonates that I talk about with comedians or any artists is that if you're going to do something in a movie or you're going to make a movie that's comedic try to do something that you've never seen before or if you have seen it before maybe it's like 25 years ago or whatever 
And I'll never forget a scene where Will Ferrell's character was in the wheelchair, paralyzed, couldn't get up, couldn't walk, and he had a knife in his hand, and he was proving it to everybody, and he stabbed himself in the leg, screamed, and stood up. And to me, there was no greater moment in comedy that you could find in a film that was so short and so compact and so powerful and so original. There wasn't anybody from drool to drool that wouldn't have laughed at that moment. But you know who had the last laugh? The man I'm about to interview. Because that movie was Will Ferrell's highest grossing opening of all time with 47 million dollars hey everybody let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success it's a project i've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition whether you want to do stand-up sketch improv acting writing producing directing radio social media influencing or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome. I am so excited. Uh to introduce uh, my guest today. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about him. There's so much on this guy that this introduction might be even longer than my cold open, which means you might not be with us for the interview. But still, I'm going to go for it. Uh, this man is the president and CEO of Funny or Die, which, of course, is the top comedy destination on the web. Uh, he's grown the digital studio there to 7.6 million Twitter followers, which makes it the number one comedy brand. He's got over 3.4 million Facebook fans at Funny or Die. Um, they have offices in Hollywood or New York. They produce tons of uh, television shows, including uh, Billy on the Street, which is airing on Fuse, and At Midnight, which was just picked up for 40 more episodes 
at Comedy Central. They have a new series called The Spoils of Babylon on IFC. Uh, they have the HBO series Funnier Die Presents. They've done several feature films. They just got involved with the personal appearance world with the uh, incredibly respected Oddball Comedy Festival Tour with Dave Chappelle and Flight of the Concords. And also Hasbro just launched uh, the Funnier Die board game. Uh, before that, uh, unbelievably, like I said, he worked at NASCAR. How that relates to Funnier Die, we'll figure that out. He worked at the Walt Disney Company and ABC as well, um, where he was involved also in the development and construction and the launch of probably one of the most successful sports or any website of all time, ESPN.com. This man is a force of nature. Please welcome my guest today, Dick Glover. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to add to the cold open story. So Jay Moore did that, that first show at the Waldorf, uh, 2004, whenever it was. Yep. I don't remember the exact year. And, and as Barry said, it went, had some highs, had some lows, but basically pretty good. And so Jay was asked back. And that awards banquet, you have to finish in the top 10 in NASCAR to be there as a driver. So there's a lot of competition. And it's a big deal to the drivers to get back there and be there and all of that. And the second year... Uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. did not finish in the top 10. Jay Moore walked out on stage, <laughs> one of the great lines of all time. He said, who would have bet that I'd be back and Dale Jr. wouldn't? <laughs> and uh, and the, the, the other thing, but, but the, the sort of lesson to be learned, that that Jay did befriend the drivers. He, he truly did like the sport. He truly respected them. and so And they knew that. So... It's one thing, it's the old story of, you know, a friend can make fun of you, but if some outsider makes fun of you, I'm going to beat the shit out of you, you know, yeah. don't do that. And so he he really was a friend of the sport, and, and so it's sort of interesting that here, you know, 10 years later almost, he's going to be back again, it sounds like, doing it. They're now in Vegas, they've come yeah. from, uh, from uh, the Waldorf. Um, so there was that. The other, you know, Talladega Nights, there was a, a lot more to that. It it really began that, that Even my cold open would have been thirty minutes. <laughs> it, it would have. It's but it's a story I love to tell because obviously if it's a success, you love to tell the story. <laughs> had, had the thing you know not work, we would not be telling the stories, and I probably wouldn't be sitting here. <laughs> the um, that the way it began was Jimmy Miller, as you mentioned, who's. An incredible Will, manager, and producer, Adam, Adam McKay's McKay. and Judd Apatow's manager, um, was friends with Casey Wasserman, who I think a lot of people know around town. Lou Wasserman's grandson, and and, and Lou Malt Wasserman was one of the most famous people in the industry who, who coined the phrase that I always love and I always utilize: "Get information, never give it." Yeah, right. And and so. Uh, Jimmy's mentioning to Casey that Will and Adam had this idea. They really wanted to create this character in NASCAR. And they sort of is the way they often do things. They had some broad ideas. And, and you know, uh, Casey was involved in the sports world, an agent in, in the sports world, and ran an agency, um, and was very well connected. And Casey was, happened to be a friend of mine and said to Jimmy, 
said, if you have any hope of getting that movie made, you got to do it with NASCAR. You can't, it just won't work. It won't be funny if it's just a stock car racing movie. And your only hope to get that movie is you got to talk to a friend of mine, Dick Glover. And so Casey set up a breakfast, and I went and had breakfast with Jimmy Miller and Judd Apatow. And I, of course, knew who Judd was, you know, and all that. I did not know Jimmy at the time. And we sat down for breakfast, and literally, I, you know, I'm like a little bit in awe that here's Judd Apatow and Jimmy Miller and, you know, what. And literally, you know, the waiter hasn't come by to take an order, and he says, all right, so we want to make a NASCAR movie. What do we have to do? Okay, let's get it. <laughs> cut right to the chase. This, that, and the other night. Jimmy cut right to the yeah, chase. <laughs> yep, that's your, you know, right away. And, uh, and he said, he said, and we're told you're the only guy that can get it made. Nobody else will understand and want to. So what do we need to do? How do we do this? And, and I said, wow, that's interesting. I said, you know, tell me a little bit more about it. And, and he, you know, talked a little bit about, about Will and Adam and, um, and how that all of their comedy, if you looked at it, it's never mean-spirited and, and that, again, there's always something smart underneath it. It's not just, you know, making fun of things or something of that sort. And, and uh, I said, all right, um, let's have a go at it. When you have something, send it over to me. And they then, I don't know what happened. There was like a, and I didn't say anything to anybody. Just, okay, I'll wait till I get something. And, and there's like a blurb in the Hollywood Reporter that Will Ferrell and Adam McKay are pitching a movie called Talladega Nights. And now Talladega is one of the most famous racetracks. It's also owned by the company that's the sister company of NASCAR. So the France family is the controlling stakeholders of the company that owns the racetrack. It's also the name of a city in Alabama. But, and, and right off the bat, somebody's, I don't know, even know how, because trust me, in Daytona, they do not read The Hollywood Reporter on a daily <laughs> basis. But somehow they got word. So I said, oh, okay, hey, look, everybody calm down. I know all about it. Don't worry about it. Well, it's a trademark violation. Talladega, we own the right. To... I said, guys, everybody settle down. <laughs> There's nothing happened yet. If there is, we'll be involved. Just settle down. Why do you think you. they, why do you think they went out and started pitching it without talking to you first. Well, they didn't. That, that, again, in this community, who knows how things happen? That, and again, I don't know. But you know, Jimmy's having dinner with Amy Pascal, and she says, "What are you guys working on?" And you know that sort of stuff. So okay. there was nothing. Amy Pascal, the president of the Sony right, Pictures, who ultimately made the movie, and and. So in other words, nothing nefarious about it. There was no, no effort. It just something happened. And by the way, it was the tiniest of blurbs. It wasn't like a big press release or something like that. But anyway, we see the first script. And to this day, I cannot remember seeing a script where I laughed so hard. <laughs> I, I closed myself in my office. I read the thing, and tears were just coming <laughs> down my eyes. It started with a scene, which, by the way, they didn't make, which, which I love. The first scene in the movie is a driver played by Adam McKay, who is a rotund fellow, let's put it that way, and he has a heart attack 
during the race and he dies. <laughs> but because in NASCAR you just keep going around in circles, he just keeps car just keeps going in circles with a dead guy driving it, and then literally <laughs> finally runs out of gas and and ends up kind of coasting uh, um, to the pit. Where Jack McBriar, who's going on to some great stuff, says, oh, my God, we literally have raced a ghost car. And, and, and as I say, they actually ended up not not using that scene for some reason. But it started like that. I was laughing on the floor. So anyway, so I say to Jimmy at that point, I said, Jimmy, we're going to make this movie. We're going to figure out how to do it. Um, now, in your mind, after you read it, even though you laughed your ass off for however long, 90 minutes or whatever it was, what percentage of the script in your mind, even though you were laughing your ass off, were you thinking to yourself, okay, I got to sell this percentage of it to the board saying, gotta, we got to do this? No, no. What, what, what percentage was offensive I, I to, knew, to the, do you, do you feel would be offensive to the board? I, I knew that it, it had to be sold in a very broad context to them. That, that the idea, I had to get them out of thinking about there'll be jokes about rednecks, or there'll be this, or there'll be that. So it wasn't so narrow and specific, but rather to get them to think more broadly, what is the joke, and why is it actually helpful for the brand, not hurtful? And most importantly, and this was true, I was convinced, and, and it proved to be true, that Judd, Will, and Adam, again, were in no way, shape, or form meaning to be malicious at all. That in point of fact, they saw it as an incredibly rich environment in which to have fun. It wasn't that they were saying, oh, let's just make fun of these guys at all. It's just, what a great place to make a movie. What, what a great environment. What a great place to develop these characters. Now, one of the things that I didn't really think about until you started talking about this, and I, you don't really think about it. So, how many people were on the board Well, it, at that time at that, that had time, to decide? Maybe eight or so. I Average age? But all that mattered, the board didn't matter. They didn't matter. It was, no, it was the France family. Okay, the that France family. Was the critical thing. And again, they took a, a big lead from the guy uh, who's a terrific, terrific guy. It's a fellow by the name of Mike Helton. He's the president of NASCAR, runs the all of the uh, operations of the whole thing. That, that He's the guy that is the maestro that really kind of makes all of that happen that from a racing perspective and from the real sport perspective. So it was really the France family. And, and which was Brian, who again, Brian's a young guy, yeah. he's the grandson of the owner, grew up marketing, knew obviously Will Ferrell and who he was. But what I, what I was His gonna... sister, his uncle, oh, yeah. his uncle who had no clue who Will Ferrell was, I'm sure, um, and, and Mike Helton, that was sort of the group that really uh, would need to be convinced. Um, and the reality is, that it wasn't that hard to convince them once they understood that it wasn't going to make fun of NASCAR from the outside in, but if we took them in and made fun of ourselves from the inside out, people love that. And that I told them, I said, look, I can't guarantee you that there isn't going to be something in there that you don't like. Well, because you couldn't, you, when, you're, when, when you're reading a script... When you gave it to the France family to read the script, you're reading the words, but you don't know how Will Ferrell's no, going to play the character. Of course. And even no matter what anybody tells you, you don't know until you go to the movie and see it. Right. 
And they never, by the way, I never showed the script to anybody. I never, <laughs> it was. You never it, showed it to them? No, no. <laughs> I, I said, you know, and, and again, understand that, that they had faith in part because they knew I was putting my job on the line. If, if I was in any way, shape, or form misleading them or anything of that sort. And I, again, I had worked for them for a while. They were very good friends. It, you know, it wasn't like I was dealing with some outsiders who I didn't know. I work with them every single day and, and, and knock on wood, I, th I think they trusted me because up to that point I had delivered for them on whatever it was that it, I had said. And likewise, they had delivered for me. They had been, in fact, I'll tell you a story in a little while about them, what kind of people they are, how, how terrific they can be. That, so we get that agreement to do it. And now I'm, I've, I've said to Jim, I said, Jimmy, you, I'm really more Judd than Jimmy. You can make the movie you want to make. We're, we're, you know, we're not here to stop you in any way, shape, or form. We're here to help you make it better, make it really realistic. We took Will and Adam and Jimmy and Judd out to California Speedway. I don't think they'd ever been Fontana. Yep. And they were just blown away, and especially Adam, who was like, just, uh, oh, my God, I can see we're gonna do, this is going to be the most fun we've ever had making a movie. And we said, we'll make all this available to you, you know, we'll, whatever you need. To make this movie terrific. Well, at a cost, probably. Not really. Not so really. So there was no license fee for NASCAR. Nope. So the nope. more the movie made, NASCAR didn't make any money. Nope. Nope. There, believe it or not, nope. The, the, Why? Um, again, there was some small fee because that it wasn't... We I didn't even want it to be positioned as, let's do this to make the money. Because I think, actually, they would have then said, no, we don't need to make the money. So when the movie makes 90 million and when the movie makes 90 million DVD and 220 million dollars worldwide, you don't say to yourself, maybe can we have a little taste of that? No, because, again, it wasn't for NASCAR, as I say, it was a brand building exercise and and that, again, we wanted to make sure it was the best movie possible. That's all we cared about, and we had no skill set there. I mean, we had to rely on Will and Adam and Judd to do that, and 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 Jimmy. Um, but there was a, a bunch of things went on that were were sort of it's kind of indicative of the relationship. So we were all set, and we had it. There was a couple people who worked for me that were going to kind of be the foot soldiers for them, and everything set. And they're going to shoot most of it in Charlotte, North Carolina, and most of it at the Charlotte Motor Speedway. And so they go to meet legendary character at that time was running the Charlotte Motor Speedway, a guy named Humpy Wheeler. And my wife to this day says, I cannot believe you actually worked with a man named Humpy. <laughs> it's like, whatever. Among Humpy's other claims to fame was he actually did uh, discover Dale Earnhardt Sr. a uh, long, long time ago on dirt tracks. But anyway... Humpy was running track, and he was a consummate promoter. Great promoter. He would do anything to promote and all that. So he got the idea of it was. And he had a little test he would do with people. So Will and Adam, I don't remember if Judd was with him, go up to his office. And he says, okay, boys, you want to shoot here? My thing, well, what do you want to do? And they sort of go through, and they're very respectful. And he's the kind of guy that he'll get down and joke with you and do all that. So finally he says, all right. He opens up his drawer. He says, you boys are serious. Takes out a bottle of moonshine. Pours a couple drinks. Says, Here. <laughs> and of course, you know, you don't say no to Humpy. 
they knocked down a few. Everybody loves each other. Had the best time possible shooting the, all that they shot there at Charlotte Motor Speedway. They then, and, and we're constantly work with them. Everything's going great. And uh, there's a scene, if you remember, at, at towards the end of the movie, where Sasha Baron Cohen and Will kiss each other, for which they won an MTV award for best movie kiss. And again, remember, nobody at NASCAR has read the script. These are, by nature, very conservative people. And this is filmed at Charlotte Motor Speedway, this scene. Mike Helton comes up to me as quietly as deadpan. He goes, going to be a lot of homosexual kissing in the movie? (laughs) I said, one scene, don't worry about it. It's in context. It's all fine. (laughs) All's well. We promote it at Talladega. We do things. It ends up it's great. The one hitch was, still, the guys that owned the Speedway said, absolutely not. You cannot call the movie Talladega Nights. And, you know, we own those rights. Not going to do it. And, again, this is still the France family. And Lisa Kennedy... France, it was, or Lisa France Kennedy, Kennedy's her married name, what, was the CEO of the company and ran the racetracks. And, and I said, Lisa, this is okay, trust me. She said, not. And what concerned her was Talladega is notorious, that race, for good old boys coming, and they literally for years had a jail set up in the infield just to process all the people that would get in trouble because it was just literally one huge party for like three days and she thought that's what the movie was about and didn't want the name on it didn't want that i said it's not about that it's fine fine she finally relents says okay they can do it and there was some license fee to talladega for the the rights to the name we go down to promote the movie at talladega and Will and Adam and those guys had never actually been to Talladega because remember the movie was all shot in Charlotte. And so it's Saturday night in the infield and there's, we're having a little party reception, whatever. And I say, come on guys, we gotta go show you what Talladega is really all about. And the police and the track officials say, no, 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 Will Ferrell cannot go out in that crowd. Absolutely not, you can't do it. And we said, oh, there's gotta be a way, come on. They get a van. Now is he dressed in his uh, uniform? No, no, no. He's just, he's just Will regular. Okay. He's just Will Ferrell. Because he occasionally promotes things where he's dressed yeah, as a scare. Yeah, but this is later. And this is literally, at, I don't know, it's probably 11, 12 o'clock at night. And Will and Adam are, no, I guess Will's sitting in the front seat. Adam's right behind him. I'm next to Adam. Jimmy's in the car somewhere. Judd's in the car somewhere. And we go to drive down. I forget what they call the main strip. It's like Thunder Alley or something in Talladega. And I mean, it's like Mardi Gras. I mean, there's some guys that are wearing tires and nothing else. There are like <laughs> signs, what goes on in this trailer stays in this trailer. There's, it is like nothing you've ever seen. We have a policeman, a motorcycle cop on each corner of the car. And they're like literally fighting away people and this, that, and the other. And Will turns around and looks at me and says, we had no idea this went on at Talladega. And he looks and says, if we did, it would have been in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the story. And, and fast forward, was it nine years later, this year at Talladega, they got a giant screen and they showed the movie on Saturday night as like a promotion 
to keep it going. So it's more still than honor. A, that must a feel huge success. Great for you. Great fun. So anyway, so that's the story of Talladega Nights. <laughs> All right, that's awesome. As I like to do, um, I like to start at the beginning. Uh, so let's go way, way, way back, and um, tell me what your first illusions were or dreams of grandeur or whatever to be in this business and what was the first thing that happened that that got you thinking about this as you were a kid and 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 take me through uh the journey yeah uh, well first and and for those of you who can't see it you have pictures of your kids playing baseball here on the wall that was me as a kid all I ever wanted to do was I was going to be a professional athlete. I didn't care what. All I cared about was sports. I was fanatical, crazy sports. Um, but grew up in suburban New York where I don't think there's ever been a professional athlete that's come <laughs> <laughs> in the community I grew up in. Um, but a lot of bankers and a lot of lawyers and people like that. And you sort of follow that path. And I did. And went uh, to Duke and got out of Duke and was sort of following that life script and then just decided with some friends to get on motorcycles and ride out west. Just, you know, we graduated from college, didn't know what we wanted to do. And I remember my parents saying to me, maybe six months later, what do you want to do with your life, you know? And, and I said, look, I've got good news and bad news. And I said, what's that? I said, the good news is I'm figuring out a lot of things I don't want to do. The bad news is I don't know what I do want to do. And I didn't. I had no idea. So I would work in the post office to make money. I would do whatever to, to now, make money. Now tell me back then, okay, you're, you're, you're taking the motorcycle out. At that point in your life, with whatever you did, would you have considered yourself a hard worker, uh, a person who like killed themselves to do the best job possible, or were you just a guy just treading through life? I, I'd say neither. I was somebody who took great pride in what I did, but was lucky enough to where most things came very easily. So I would not consider myself a hard worker in the sense that I didn't have to work hard, if you will, but... I got the results of a hard worker. And, and again, I was definitely not like, uh, uh, you know, a ne'er-do-well or anything of that sort. Um, and did, and, and something which I say to everybody now, and it's cliched, everybody says it, you know, follow your passion, do what you love, and you'll never have a day of work in your life and all that sort of stuff. And so I was just figuring out what I loved. Because I said, I know I was going to be a professional athlete, I didn't really study to be an announcer or something like that, but um, you know. But but I was really interested in media and that sort of stuff. So I went back to school in a graduate program in what was called broadcast communication arts. Because I seem, and lo and behold, I really did find that I loved that. I I I loved communications, if you will, and ended up getting a job. You know through a college internship, met a guy who then gave me my first real job working at a TV station in Atlanta, Georgia, of all places. And it came through an internship? An internship while I was at school, actually in San Francisco. So okay. Small, strange world. No, it's just the little things but, always become the big thing. But ultimately, through a couple of steps, um, ended up uh, at ESPN. And how did you end up there? 
it, well, so I worked in television, worked at a TV. What were you station. doing in television? I was running. Uh, ultimately, I was doing news and programming. I, were you behind the scenes or in all front? behind the scenes? Okay. So I was. I was, and ultimately became what they called a news director, which basically m- mean, meant I ran all the news of a. So you went. So you went from an intern at one place to just a short time later, you're a news director. And that was again. By that point in time, I worked very hard. I mean, well, very, you'd have very to hard. to move up that quickly. Yeah, I moved, worked very, very hard. And I remember somebody saying to me, kind of senior executive, "How old are you?" And I said, "I don't know, I was 27 or something. I can't remember my age." He said, "You can't be important until you're 30." And this is not <laughs> long after it was never trust anyone over 30. So, you know. Uh, Whatever. So I, I end up one of the guys who ran a television station ended up running a company that was doing a lot of cable TV programming and brought me on board. And we were actually uh, starting what would be a series of regional sports networks like you see now. That They were the early days of those um, and ended up from that 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 it's a long story. That company was partnered with ABC. ABC had an opportunity to, to buy ESPN. Uh, and and ultimately did, and that it was through that that I ended up at ESPN. And out here in L.A. or Bristol? No, I was in Bristol. I had offices in both Bristol and New York. And what was your position when you came to ESPN? Um, I started as the first employee at a division they called ESPN Enterprises. And understand, at that point in time, ESPN was one network— and a bunch of international distribution. And this is in the early 90s? This is the early 90s, correct. And my boss at the time was still a very, very good friend out here, Steve Bornstein, who has done very, very well over subsequent years. But anyway, Steve said to me, he said, look, your job working, obviously, with him and a lot of other people at ESPN, is to grow the brand in very positive ways that we had just... I think made the first profit ever in the history of the company the year that I joined. Steve had just been named president maybe a few months before that. But what qualified you at that point in time to grow the brand of the biggest sports cable network in the world? Back then it was one network, remember? It was not what it is today by a long stretch. But, I mean, he chose had, you to do that. How, yeah, what was because, it that you gave him the confidence? The things I had done in this other company when we were starting these regional sports networks, I obviously I knew sports going back to what were you passionate about as a kid. I love sports, and I continued. So I, I knew sports. I knew television programming, had run successful departments of news and programming. And, and so they had the confidence that, I could do this, and and um, and something Steve taught me, which is something else, which is really true for people, which is hire people who you think will be good at what they do, give them the tools to do it, challenge them, but get out of the way. And um, Steve, to this day, absolutely by far the best boss I've ever worked with, or I've ever known of other people who I've seen known bosses. You don't. You haven't had many bosses in a while. Not that. No, that's <laughs> true. But but it is. But what he did, and and uh, expression I think somebody said about somebody else, but it really applied to Steve. He didn't make you feel good, but he made you be good. He would challenge you to to you know 
do you really believe in this? And if you really did, off you went. And then you told the story of ESPN.com. One of the things that I saw in the early 90s that would be an opportunity to grow was what we called back then data, data distribute computer-delivered sports information. Because remember, the internet, you know, Al Gore was the only guy who knew what the internet was <laughs> at that point in time. Um, and there was a couple of online services, Prodigy, AOL, and CompuServe. Learned an incredible lesson. So we're looking what to do, how to do it. We decided we'll partner with one of them short term to learn before we do it all ourselves. And so we're negotiating. And Steve Case at that point in time ran AOL. And he says to me, and they'd just gone public, literally just gone public. He says, all right, we'll do this deal. We'll do you know, ESPN on AOL, and I can give you warrants in my company. And then a fellow by the name of Scott Kernan, who's gone on to great success, ran Prodigy. And he said, well, at Prodigy, we're going to do a ton of TV advertising, so we'll do a deal to do, we called it ESPN Net, <laughs> and we'll spend $12 million in advertising on ESPN. I go back to Steve Case. He says, we think they're wrong. We're not going to do advertising. That's not the way to do it. We distribute discs for free, and that's how we do it. But I can give you the warrants, and that's it. So both Steve Bornstein and I really liked AOL better, thought it was a better service, kind of liked the people. They felt a little bit more like our people. But, you know, back then, $10, $12 million of advertising, that was a lot of cash in hand. And as I said so brilliantly to Steve Case, Steve, we have no idea if these warrants will ever be worth anything, so we're going to have to go with Prodigy. Well, we had fine. Our year with Prodigy was great, worked out fine, but our AOL stock at the time of the Time Warner deal would have been worth, you know, something like $280 million. <laughs> <laughs> and, but the lesson, and Steve and I talked about it, was, you know what? You need to go with your gut some, too. It isn't just what's the best deal at that point in time. And not because AOL, again, it's hard to believe now with the current state of the situation, but was you know so successful. But it was, they would have been a better fit for ESPN at that point in time. But um, we made a different decision, whatever. But then went on, did exactly what we thought, learned over the course of the year, learned about the internet and what it was, did a joint venture with a Paul Allen company to launch ESPN.com and you know, that worked out pretty well. <laughs> when did you know that something crazy was happening with ESPN.com? When did you know that, like, something had really turned a corner and something's really going crazy out here in the world? Before we launched it, and that sounds, I don't know, kind of arrogant or something, but, but it was true. And we used to have a big programming meeting every year at ESPN once a year, and all the people uh, who are involved in any kind of programming and content for the whole company, we go to an offsite for two or three days or whatever. And we had just launched ESPN2 at that point, which is the second network. And we had launched, just launched ESPN.com around the same time. And we did a presentation, because most of the people, even the company, had no idea what the internet was and how it worked. And so we did a presentation of all the cool things you could do on ESPN.com. And I remember during the presentation saying to everybody, 
as I understand, and, and ESPN2 was a huge success. They had leverage retransmission consent to get it with the biggest launch at that point in time in the history of cable networks, 40 million homes. Explain what you just said, leverage trans. Retrans, okay. The, the, uh, basically all the over-the-air television stations said to the FCC, this isn't fair. Cable companies aren't paying us for our programming. That's not fair. And the cable companies argued, wait, they're free over the air. We're just retransmitting a free signal. We shouldn't have to pay for that. So what the FCC ruled was that the company could make a choice. You could force all the cable systems in your area to carry your channel. So you could force them to retransmit it, but then there's no payment. Or you could say, I'm not forcing you, and now let's negotiate. But they don't have to do a deal. They can just say, I don't need you. Um, you can get the programming. Some other. So what some of the big companies, remember uh, ESPN was owned by ABC, what they leveraged was they would say, take the local station. We're also partly owned 20%. To this day, many people don't know this, the Hearst Corporation owns 20% of ESPN. Anyway, I did not know that. So we took all the Hearst stations, all the ABC stations. We said, here's the deal. You have to take ESPN2 as well. That's the negotiating, or else you don't get these ABC stations. So given that, and that was a novel technique back then, now it's sort of de rigueur of how things <laughs> are done. Um, ESPN2 is in 40 million households, most successful cable launch in the history of humankind. And I remember standing up at the programming thing and saying, right now, there are approximately 40 million computers that could access the internet, which is the same number as households that ESPN2 is in. ESPN.com will grow faster and bigger than ESPN2. For, ESPN2 will never be as big as ESPN.com. And ESPN.com will reach more people in a more direct way than ESPN2. And at its height, you know, how many now, people does it reach? I, you know, I don't know what the numbers are now, <laughs> but a lot. A lot. <laughs> but it, so is, uh, it is, at that point in time, because remember, I was talking to a room of people who were very smart people who had no idea what I was talking about. And so the thought that this thing could grow to be, you know, literally accessible to billions of people was a completely foreign concept. Um, but then you, but it was clear. That but that's then, what was but obviously happen. you're rising and you're rising and everything you're touching with your hard work and whatever ingenuity you will admit to having um, is taking you to different levels. So now you launch this thing that's never been done before. It's hugely successful. You launch ESPN2, hugely successful. So then what's the next step in your journey and what happens next after well, the, ESPN? Um, we did have, and, and by the way, there's uh, a lot to be said for being in the right place at the right time. <laughs> so uh, I was pretty lucky to happen to be sitting in the right chair at the right time. Um, and the, the, the group of people at ESPN at that time and subsequent, it's just an amazing company, just unbelievably talented people. Um, but in the course of that, uh, one of the other things 
that I and the fellow who is now the president of ESPN, a fellow by the name of John Skipper, um, championed the idea of launching a magazine. And by now, Disney has bought ESPN. And everybody was like, why in the world in this day and age would you launch a magazine? It's all about the internet. And by the way, you guys have done phenomenal on the internet and this is great and all of that. But we convinced them of why we thought it was important to launch a magazine, which went on to be hugely successful. It's now finally starting to tail off. You know, I think they just had their 20th anniversary. No, it couldn't have been 15th anniversary, I guess. Um, but through all of that, I was kind of the guy that ended up spending a lot of time out here in Burbank coordinating things between Disney and ESPN. And so when Disney looked at what they were going to do with their overall strategy for the internet broadly for the Walt Disney Company and, and came to the conclusion they decided, and I should back up, and I had worked very closely with the people who were in charge of all the internet strategy and everything for the Walt Disney Company. And they decided to buy a company called Infoseek. Now, for most people, they have no idea what Infoseek is. But at that point in time, which I guess was 99, Infoseek was the second largest search engine uh, behind Yahoo. And Google was, I don't even know if Google was a public company yet. It was, it was very small. Bing didn't even exist. There was a thing called Excite.com was another search engine. Um, Ask Jeeves. Yeah. <laughs> there were a couple of others. Alta Vista. But Infoseek was number two. And so Disney decides for $700 million to buy Infoseek. But the reason, nobody thought search was what it was all about. They thought it was about portals. So it wasn't Yahoo Search. It was Yahoo was this great portal. You got all this information and all, you know, and it sort of was your gateway to the internet. And, and so that's why Disney bought Infoseek to create this Disney gateway to the internet. And in a meeting where the Infoseek executive said, look, we have this incredible engine we built for contextual search, which means you can sell advertising against it. So somebody searches for a car, you can sell that to Dodge and somebody searches for baseball, you can sell that to Rawlings and, you know, play it out infinitely. That's what we've built. And they had, and it worked really well. But the Walt Disney Company was so set on portals that they said, and I quote, there will never be any money in search advertising. <laughs> so they, they create this thing, the Disney Internet Group, and a thing called Go.com, and that's what brought me out here. My friend Steve Bornstein was named the chairman and president of it, and I came out to run all of the uh, stuff that wasn't Disney-branded. So ESPN, ABC, ABC News, Mr. Showbiz, Movies.com, a bunch of other things. Um, and again, the strategy was incredibly flawed, not just because you took Infoseek and stripped it of what really made it good, but this idea that you would centralize. So all of a sudden, out of Glendale, we're running ESPN.com. You know, it, it just, it, it was strategically flawed, to say the least, and subsequently failed. <laughs> well, so what happens after that? So after that, um, 
both Steve and I. Except the, the, I mean, it's interesting that uh, this is a critical point in your life because for the first time in your life, you've failed in a big way. And you might yeah. not blame it on yourself because it was a circumstances, but you were aligned with it. Oh, absolutely. Although, again, uh, an important lesson was learned. As part of it, um, I had to dismantle a lot of this stuff that had been built and and it was pretty easy on some of it espn you just give it back to espn everybody goes to bristol they go off and run it and all is good it was a little bit more difficult for like abc which was based out here and abc news a couple of so we had to lay off a lot of people and when it was done we had gone through the whole process and not only was there not one single um I don't know if complaints the right word, but but really complain, you know, but certainly no lawsuits, no anybody saying people weren't happy they lost their jobs, but they was no complaint. But there were a lot of people who came up to me who had lost their jobs and said, you know, I really want to thank you on how this was all handled. And and again, it was I've said this a lot of times. In some ways, it's something I'm most proud of of all the things I've ever done was how we as a company, and it obviously wasn't just me and, and, and me as a person, did handle what was a terrible situation for a lot of people. It was a horrible, that was when the bubble burst and everything else. Um, so yeah, it wasn't uh, a good time, but, but it was, was one which you learn a lot. And so, how, so how did you move so on? Steve ended up taking a job at the NFL, doing all of their media, all of their broadcasting, launching NFL Network and all that. And I took the same job at NASCAR, essentially. I mean, it wasn't exactly simultaneous. There were a few months difference, but now that's how I got to NASCAR. Talk about uh, you're famous uh, in my circles um, for negotiating, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, one of the, if not the biggest sports television contracts of all time. I believe it was a at least if you weren't responsible for it, you were the driving force with it, the billion-dollar NASCAR broadcast deal. Could you talk about that? First of all, it's tiny compared to the NFL deals. (laughs) So from a factual point of view... Back then, it wasn't tiny compared to that. Even back then, it was tiny compared to the NFL deals. Um, But it was a big deal for NASCAR, certainly. And by the way, to their credit, it was an eight-year deal which just came up and they just did a new deal where they got a a pretty nice increase. Um, You know, when you're negotiating a deal and the number you're trying to get to is a billion, can you imagine what you start at? Yeah, but but what, it it really in some ways is simple, in some ways isn't. What's simple is always make sure you are selling one fewer packages than you have bidders for. And remember, these are huge media companies. So if you got four bidders and you only have three packages, you don't have to be brilliant to do pretty good. And so the key is how to have a three valuable packages in, in that instance. Um, and, and again, uh, we sat down and figured out where was the value and, and what was valuable with my experience. I knew what mattered to ESPN. I mean, ironically, one of the things, one of the last things I did at ESPN before coming out here was negotiate 
the exit, if you will, from the last NASCAR deal. NASCAR was doing some things, and ESPN had some rights that NASCAR had to get back that we negotiated, and, and, and I did that. And so when I joined NASCAR, one of the fellows who was on the other side of it said, yeah, I don't know why we hired you. You were the guy that screwed us when you were at ESPN. <laughs> um, and and to, then he stopped. He said, I guess that's a good reason to hire you. Um, <laughs> but that it, it, you know, again, in negotiating any deal, that what I found is, one, if you can figure out what the other guy really needs and you can figure out how you can satisfy those needs and you listen to it, that then you'll do pretty well in getting your needs satisfied. Um, that you sure you're not a marriage counselor? <laughs> not at all. <laughs> the um, you know, and 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 the other thing, because because I've been on both sides of it, is when you do have all the leverage. You know how you uh, how you use that to not create resentment and, and anger, because you have to live with whoever you've done a deal with. And so, so you know, when you have all the leverage, how to say, okay, but how can I still make this a win for the other side in some way? And then likewise the reverse, when you really don't have much leverage, you know, they kind of got you over a barrel, you know, how do you just try and, and you know, figure out what's the best you can do, what's the most appropriate and, you know, walk away with with the best you can do now before we get into uh funny or die i just want to ask you about your time didn't you spend some time with the wwe the world wrestling uh with uh with vince mcmahon could you tell us a little bit about that tell us uh tell us uh some story that means something of how you got there and what happened while you were there that was uh special to you and that uh, helped you on this uh crazy journey well, of yours yeah no that the lesson at, at the wwe where by the way i had a great time and uh, again was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time and kind of almost everything that we and they did at that time worked and it was big business but um but there is nobody who is more passionate about his product than vince mcmahon and the wwe um, that his idea of a great day is to be sitting by the pool on a gorgeous day working the business, you know, planning storylines, planning shows, planning... Well, you just said something that's fascinating, uh, planning storylines. And one of the things that's so fascinating about every kind of reality show, and to me wrestling was probably one of the first reality shows ever and people don't really understand that or they maybe they do understand that uh, they all people always said was well it's it's either fake you know it's fake but they never thought to themselves about the soap opera behind yeah. what was happening and how it was happening and that's like the same thing like when i uh, interviewed uh, joe uh, weinstock from um from uh, uh, duck dynasty the executive producer you know, I said to him, I watched the show, and it just, it seems like a sitcom to me. It's like, well, we, you know, and basically he, he, he's not allowed to say, hey, we have a right. team of writers, and we right. put it all together, right. and, and it's the same. It was, it, the whole theatrics of it, it was like a play every time, and, and, and it's so, it, it must have been a great mix for you, because you being the branding expert, and Vince McMahon being the guy whose vision 
was to just figure out how to keep this brand going and move it into all different areas. Yeah, no, I, I have, have said, and it's been confirmed a number of times, that I am not at all creative. In fact, the guys now, they laugh. They send me scripts to read, so whatever I say, they'll know the opposite is, <laughs> is true. So if I love it, they say, all right, bag it. That's not going to work. Um, and and same was true with Vince. I, you know, I had nothing to do whatsoever with anything having to do with storylines, having to do with characters and all that, but did have a lot to do with the business of it and what do you do to build that brand and to sell products. And, so and tell, me a, tell me one story, like pretend like all your stories are drowning in the ocean about the World Wide Wrestling Federation or whatever it was, WWE and Vince McMahon, all the stories, everything you saw while you were there, one thing that like people would be like, Holy shit, that's a great story. Sadly, either uh, my memory's gone or I, you know, it's like the 80s. If you can remember them, you weren't there. Um, <laughs> that, that I really didn't have any great, outrageous, crazy stories that, that happened to me. I mean, good that I met my wife there. I mean, that was a nice How'd that story. happen? Um, <laughs> it, uh, it happened because she, the first time we met, she was... Linda McMahon, who, by the way, also a brilliant, sharp, smart lady, but now this couldn't is something how to become U.S. senator. But Linda, well, you say Linda McMahon now. Pardon my naivete because I didn't do the deep research. Uh, Are you saying Linda McMahon, Vince McMahon's wife? Wife. Yeah, she was the way it worked in the business. It's, I guess this is the story that that they were uh, uh, not childhood uh, teen high school lovers whatever she was the beauty queen straight a student homecoming queen all of that he was the town bad boy and somehow they came together fell madly in love uh and they got married at at a young age and she likes to tell the story that they went off to college she went through in about two and a half years finished it after five, they essentially said they'd had enough of Vince and, you know, gave him a degree to get him out and going. Mm-hmm. And by that time, she was pregnant with their first son. But throughout their, to, to this day, really, that, you know, Vince was always this creative, incredible energy and all of that, uh, just brilliant. And she was the terrific businesswoman that made all his genius work as a business. Um, and then finally, when it you know the stock goes public and they're billionaires, uh, she went off to pursue a political career, which, as I say, she's running for the Senate in Connecticut a couple of times, um, and, and not successfully, but but now really doesn't have I don't, I don't think anything to do with the business. But her daughter, her, her and Vince's daughter, who married one of the wrestlers, is probably the key executive other than Vince right now uh, there. And it's amazing. It's just an amazing story. But anyway, my wife was Linda's assistant. In fact, uh, the story is not a great story. It's just a fun story for me. My wife was like, you know, 23 years old, out of college, you know. And how old are you at the time? I was, you know, mid-30s, I guess. Yeah. Um, And that, like most, you know, 23-year-old girls out of college, sort of living off the credit card, paying the minimum balance, whatever. Part of her job for Linda, who by this point they were quite wealthy, was you know writing the checks and doing this. 
So she gets Linda's MasterCard bill for $72,000 or whatever it is for that month and pays the $2,100 minimum balance or whatever. And Linda goes, oh, Mike, what are you doing? And she says, I'm just paying the money. She says, no, we're okay. We can pay the balance, <laughs> which is a foreign concept to Amy. But uh, I had to get by Amy to get Linda kept a stash of, like, uh, snacks that were behind Amy's desk and I had to get by her to get the snacks. <laughs> and that's how it all came down. They say a woman knows within five minutes of being with a guy if she's going to be with him. Did she know in five minutes? No, she couldn't stand me. <laughs> because I kept getting her in trouble with Linda. Why are you letting Glover raid the snack jar? Awesome. Well, let's move into the funny or die portion of your life because things go full circle. And I always say it's all about, you know, these relationships that you form. Here you are at NASCAR. You just meet Will Ferrell and Adam McKay and, and Judd Apatow for the first time, and you hang out, you do a movie together. They believe in you because they see you as a guy who got shit done. And I would imagine when that phone call came, uh, not that it was expected, but it was like they felt safe with you, and they felt like with you there was a guy who could take them to the next level. Well, you'd have to ask them. <laughs> um what happened was, uh, after Talladega Nights, I stayed in touch with them for a variety of reasons. Adam's uh, a huge sports fan, particularly basketball, and I am too. And um, Will's, uh, uh, at the time, his oldest child and my daughter were applying at the same time at Talladega Nights to get into the same school that Will got in, and we didn't. And when my daughter it's a private Will, school here in LA. Yeah, when my daughter met Will for the first time, I introduced Will as this is the family that's denying you an education. <laughs> to Will. For those of you um, out there in the audience that don't know who aren't here in Los Angeles, there's this crazy thing with these private schools because for some reason the public schools here in the Los Angeles area sad. are horrible. Uh, most of them are horrible. There are certain areas like. Uh, uh, I believe Palisades, Malibu, there's certain pockets where public schools are just as good as like a private school, but for the most part, for some reason, it's not. So there's all these incredible private schools that cost like 25000 minimum for your child to go, uh, and you have to go through this process. It doesn't matter if you're Will Ferrell or if you're Dick or you're anybody. You have to go through this process, get recommendations, everything, and you can be denied, even though you haven't been denied in your entire life for anything. You can be denied and shut down, and you got to go to the next one. It's like literally like you're applying to colleges, but you're doing it for a four-year-old. Yeah, and don't get me started, because I grew up in public schools. My wife grew up in public schools. I believe in public schools. I think it's important, but you almost have no choice in certain areas. But anyway, so I kept in touch. But I, I, I particularly kept uh, and, and became pretty good friends with Jimmy Miller. And Jimmy called me one day and said, uh, you know this thing Will and Adam have done, this, this, this internet thing? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got the first that they email blast they did for the landlord to a bunch of people I'd gotten. I said, yeah, yeah. Landlord, which probably has over 100 million views already. But, and, and so um, they said, yeah, you know, it's sort of kind of working. It's okay. They need somebody to run it. Um, 
how do I find somebody to do that? How do you do it? Where do you find somebody like that? You know that stuff. How does it? And I said, Jimmy, you will never find anybody in this town to do it. Because remember, the company was born in Silicon Valley. They still had an office in Silicon Valley. I said, the way those guys work is not the way people work down here. Essentially, you work for nothing. You get a piece of the company and you have a go at it. And go and just put a pin in that for a second, just so the audience knows. When he's talking about Silicon Valley, what happened is to to get a a creative effort like that for Adam McKay and Will Ferrell to get going, to drive a website like that, maybe these days it doesn't cost as much, but back when it launched, it cost millions and millions of dollars to run the software and be able to have a, a portal that is able to hold the amount of video content that it has. So you have to raise money from certain places. And when he's talking about Silicon Valley, which they raised uh, money uh, with one company, Sequoia Capital, came through and they put millions and millions of dollars into this uh, with the understanding that Will and Adam would be the front face of it and would create content for it and would drive business forward. And the whole reason uh, Silicon Valley put something together, and you may disagree with this, is to one day sell it for a kajillion dollars. Yeah, the, the, the idea actually, it started at Sequoia Capital and recruited the people down here. So Fun or Die still is really, and we still have the office up in Silicon Valley, which is a very important part of what we do. Um, but that, again, unlike Hollywood, where executives running companies make a ton of money and then they get stock options and things of that sort in, in the companies, but it's a very different kind of structure. So I said to Jimmy, I, I guarantee you the Sequoia guys don't want to pay any money and the kind of people you're used to working with don't work for no money. And Jimmy said, okay, well, if you know, if you ever run across some young kid or something, you know, let me know. <laughs> I said, okay. Fast forward a few months later, um, I get a call from Sequoia Capital. We've got this company that we've started. It's doing pretty well. Based up here and down there, and we've heard you've lived in both those worlds, and you know we'd like to talk to you about it. And I so said, you were the young kid they called. Well, except that I don't know if Sequoia and Jimmy ever even talked. But so I said I had no interest. I said, look, I love what I do. I have no interest <laughs> in going to a startup. That's not my nature. No interest. And they said, well, can we at least tell you a little bit about the company? I said, you can do whatever you want, but I'm no interested. All right, it's a company called Funny or Die. I said, oh, yeah, sure, I know Funny or Die. And they said, you do? I said, yeah, I know those guys, like, really well. I know Jimmy Willer very well, Will and Adam. I know those guys really well. You know those guys? <laughs> I said, yeah. Next thing you know, I get a call from Jimmy Miller. You got to do this, Glover. You got to do this. <laughs> I just talked to Mark Kwame is the name of the... That's a very that's a very animated impression of Jimmy. That's you don't true. really hear him like that too yeah. often. You got to do this. I said, Jimmy, I can't do this. No, oh, you got to do this. The guys, it's great. You got to do this. So I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but how did they open the vault to be able to afford somebody well, like well, you? Well, they didn't. And and again, it's a story I've told several times because it says a lot about the guys. So I went and I met with Will and Adam and Chris Henchy, who's now their partner yep. as well. And and I said, and I said, listen, guys, here's the deal. If I do this, because I'm going to take a huge pay cut, and you know, and this thing happens, if it doesn't work, Will, you're going to do your next movie, and 
That's fine. It's all good. Adam, you're going to direct the movie. It's all fine. It's all good. Chris, you're going to write the movie. It's all good. It doesn't matter. But if I do this and it doesn't work, my wife's shopping at the thrift store, and that's going to be a problem for me. <laughs> and I said, so I've got to know from you guys that you're really committed to it, that this is something you believe in, and I've got to know why. And they looked me in the eye and explained to me why it was important to them, why they really felt this was an opportunity in the same way that Saturday Night Live had given them an opportunity to show what they could do and, and really develop a career, that this was a great opportunity to do that for a lot of people. It's also a great opportunity for them to be able to do things free of the normal constraints that exist in Hollywood and that that's what they want to do. They would continue to want to do that. They would always want to do it. And I said, all right, you talk me into it. And they've lived up to everything every day since. They, they're phenomenal This, this is the thing that I, uh, and I wanted to sort of go a little toe-to-toe -to -toe with you here on this for a second because I, I have an opinion, uh, like most people, that I don't believe that Funny or Die or any portal that distributes comedy can sustain... Um, to the highest levels and grow and grow and keep continuing to grow. And I'll tell you why I believe this to be the case. If, if you're running Dick's Comedy Warehouse website portal and that's your only job and you're looking through every single video and you're showing the people you know and back and forth, you're going to have a quality control of content. What that's called now is Comedy Central or any network, which 24 hours a day, there's a group of executives that decide every frame of programming that goes on seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And even then, if you were to talk to Doug Herzog and ask him what percentage of the programming is successful on that network, with millions of dollars of salaried employees looking over to make sure every frame is the best possible content, he would say probably 80% of the stuff on his network is not doing a rating. Okay? So you're dealing with funny or die. Your job is to brand it, to get it out, to put it into the next hemisphere of, of the world. But the fact is, when you go on to Funny or Die, and if I were to randomly watch, just like a, throwing like a dart on a dartboard or something, and I were to watch a random sampling of 10 videos, I can guarantee you that all 10 are not going to make me laugh from start to finish. And I can probably guarantee you that 9 out of 10 are not going to make me laugh. So imagine if you were in a situation where, you know, you go to see Everybody Loves Raymond on television when you're watching that 10 years ago, and you watch 10 weeks in a row, and nine weeks suck, and one week is good, that show is canceled. And so I think the fatal flaw for, uh, and not to uh, drive you crazy here, the fatal flaw for this business model is the fact that Will and Adam... If I knew that Will, Adam, and, and Jimmy were looking at every video that went on the portal, I would bet on them a thousand percent that this would be the most successful venture of all time. 
and it is successful. But I'm saying is I don't think it can keep going when you know when you're going on, you're surfing it and looking at it, that nine out of ten things aren't funny. And that's my opinion of how I think you're it's a it's a it's a cracked foundation of an unbelievably extraordinary concept with two guys who I consider to be geniuses. What's your thought on that? Um, that I, I, the good news is you're actually not probably our core audience, and that's not how people do. What he's saying things. is I'm elderly, ladies exactly. and gentlemen. The uh, and and you're a little bit more conservative than most. Andrew Steele is our creative director. Worked with Will and Adam for many years at Saturday Night Live himself. He worked there 12 years, and and he sort of channels Will and Adam, if you will, from a creative perspective for us. And and Andrew said to me, he said, you know, in comedy and Saturday Night Live was a great example of this. It's like baseball. If you hit three out of ten, you bat 300, you're an all-star. If you should ever hit four out of ten, you're in the Hall of Fame. If you hit two out of ten, you barely maybe stay in the league. So that those are the numbers. I, I agree. He said the key is... If we do 10 videos, there are four of us in this room, you might like two, she might like three, only one of them is one of your two. He might like three. When he says, she, when he says she's pointing to Sarah, our producer, and Ari, and our whatever. So that, producer. That, and that you, you know, everybody's satisfied to a degree. And the key, if you looked at using Saturday Night Live as an example, the heyday of Saturday Night Live, whatever year, whatever group you thought was the best of you know, the talent. And you go back and watch, you realize if they did 10 sketches, there were only two or three you really loved and you were talking about to everybody the next day, and that's sufficient. But that, that isn't what our model is built on at all. And, and the website is just a small part of the business that we do. Well, obviously, and man. Will and Adam's uh, video contribution is a tiny, tiny part. Now, their creative contribution, their oversight, is obviously huge. But in terms of the number of videos that are made, you're right. They do very, very few, relatively speaking. You know, we do about 20 to 25 different videos a month. And, you know, I would gather to say in most months, maybe one or two at most are Will or Adam or Judd videos. But that the whole mechanism, how we began, why it's funny or die, is a self-selection process. People are voting. So when you, if you go to the website you'll already see that 60% of the people didn't like this. I'm not going to spend my time watching it. But the way you'll most likely get to the website is somebody will share with you something they've seen. And so automatically, there's a good chance you will like it. And so that when you watch 10 videos on Funny or Die, the way you're coming to the site, the chances are you'll like 9 out of 10 because you're not being shown the... 2000 that you wouldn't find the least bit amusing because that's the way people consume content in this. The second part of it is, it's the beauty of, you use Doug Herzog and, and Comedy Central as an example. The beauty of all cable TV networks is the aggregation of small numbers and, and the purity of those numbers. So if you have a very good audience from an advertiser perspective and you can bring that audience back, small numbers, but a lot of times, that aggregates up to be a very nice balance. It's almost like the long tail of network television. In, in a lot of ways. But you ask Doug, you know, the second question, how's the network do? He said, oh, my God, we're printing money. <laughs> you know, so, so that 
maybe 80% of the programming isn't that good. That may be true. I think that may be a high number. I think he, he has a lot better batting average than that. But the beauty of the aggregating of those numbers... I'm just talking about the 24 hours of programming. So in other words, from midnight stuff to... stuff gets repeated again, not the bad stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and so from that aspect of it, the other part of our business that's evolved that, that is a terrific business is using this skill set to help advertisers build their brands. So now we can go to, we just did a thing, for instance, with Fiat, that we sat down and made a video with them. It was phenomenal. It was a great little video. It really helped them sell cars. The example everybody's talking about today, which was done out of a, one of the divisions of Funny or Die, we have an advertising services division called Gifted Youth, and they produced the Dodge Durango commercials with Will Ferrell. And according to Edmonds, Durango sales are up 57% since this campaign started. Because again, making very funny videos that appeal to people, but more importantly in this day and age, they get shared among people, they get talked about. So the statistics you, you quoted in the beginning of, of your cold open with Funny or Die, you didn't even mention how many people come to the website. You mentioned how many Twitter followers we have, how many Facebook fans we have, how many Tumblr followers we have. I believe That's I, more important than the website. You, um, but you, the website, by the way, does have you know tens of millions of people coming every month. But that isn't really you. You happen to be correct in what were the significant numbers in terms of how the business is structured. Um, and then the other part of it is that. And, and it's, there is a certain irony in this, is that we've taken this skill set of being able to produce comedy relatively inexpensively, market it to this ecosystem we've created incredibly inexpensively, i.e. for free, essentially. And now we can do that for traditional television shows, for movies, for commercials for whatever it's going to be well that's the fascinating thing about you and the the what you've done here on the journey is the fact that you're taking this new technology and this new way of doing business and merging it with the old no exactly and it's you're still utilizing every single aspect of traditional the the same thing that you would think that funny or die you know just just pushes away and says hey we're the we're we're the new thing we're doing this check this out you still use the old guard to help you get where you want to sure. go. Well, one of the things that, in fact, we're probably the most proud of is I'm not sure there is any other company on the production side of it. There is on the distribution side, but on the production side. Shout out to Mike Farah. No, shout out to Mike Farah. But on the, who has married Silicon Valley and Hollywood. That's a tough marriage. Those are very disparate cultures. Now, people have done it on the distribution side, Hulu, YouTube. Yahoo, for that matter, but not on the content creation side. Now, again, they're trying. Hulu's trying to become a studio. Amazon's trying to become a studio. YouTube, ironically, <laughs> spent $100 million that they now pretend they never spent and don't want to talk about because <laughs> it isn't easy. Um, so that I would agree with you, by the way, 100%. If our business model was getting people to come to a website to consume comedy and that was it, that, I agree with you. That, that is not a big business at all. If our website, if our business model is to be a brand that is ubiquitous wherever comedy 
is, whether it's digital, whether it's traditional, whether it's commercial, whatever, then that is a big business because it's a big world. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're heading down the final roundup. I'm going to ask you a few more questions, sure. then we'll let you uh, ride off in the sunset here. So it's Beautiful from up here, by the way. A beautiful view of the city and the ocean. That's pretty cool. Um, take me through what you believe or perceive as something. You mentioned CEOs that you worked for that were very inspirational. You mentioned how they treated you sometimes, how they may, might not have treated you with the utmost care and respect, <laughs> but they taught you something um, really, really special. Take me through something that you do as a boss, that your people who work under you would look at you and 10, 20 years from now, they would say to somebody on a couch like this, this is what I learned from Dick Glover. Well, the vast majority of people yeah, Dick Glover, yeah, I sort of remember that asshole from whenever. <laughs> that, that I think, and if you do talk to people, I, I, I do take some degree of pride in, in hiring people who are curious, who are passionate, uh, who who are interesting, who are, you know, hardworking, and then having trust that I hired the right person, really letting them do what they do, whatever it may be. And we have some really different kinds of people in the company. But I think pretty much everybody would say, wow, I, I really feel like I have the freedom to do what I'm good at, and I sink or swim, that that I'm not gonna blame anybody else if you know if it doesn't work. If I put a truth serum in uh, a random sampling of ten of your employees who right. work under you, and I said, "Tell me collectively what Dick's biggest fault is," what would they say? I would really hope, really hope that they would say his biggest fault is he's just too nice. That would be my dream that they would say that. Okay, well, And I think one or two of them would. <laughs> let's, let's hope your dreams come true there. Uh, what's your biggest disappointment professionally? Um, wow, I really, knock on wood, have not had... had a lot of disappointments. Oh, well, I, I, I guess there's one. I've only had one job that I actually didn't like and didn't do very long, um, ironically, which is I ran the business side of a professional basketball team. Um, and as we've talked about, I'm a huge sports fan, and so I thought that was going to be the coolest thing in the world. And what I found out was the only job in professional sports where you really have control is owner and no one's ever been promoted to owner. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I literally learned that the first day on the job when the owner introduced me to everybody and I realized he had neutered me at that moment in that space. I said, this is not gonna work out. <laughs> and he was a very, very nice man. 
Um, and I don't even think he was even aware of what he did. Most people aren't. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, what's your proudest moment professionally? Proudest, as I said, I mentioned that one where we had to lay off all the people, and I actually got thanked by some people who had lost their jobs. That that, that really did make me feel very proud of myself. I also the other one that we did talk about, like, and I don't know if I'd say proudest, but forever the Talladega Nights experience was just a fantastic experience from every side of it, from having to work the NASCAR side and all that that entailed. And it just um, and it also came full and, circle in the relationship yeah, now. Up, it's but, but, but and, and then just um, making a movie that was really, really fun. And again, I played a, in, on that side of it. My role was infinitesimally small, but to me it was pretty cool. <laughs> no, but I mean also you get to work with uh, Will, who I, I've known for since his early days in SNL and just... One of the most amazing, wonderful people you'll ever meet. He has no fear um, and just is so nice to everybody. And Adam is just, just I mean, just an amazing, amazing, extraordinary man. And Jimmy Miller, for those of you in our audience <laughs> that don't know him, you know, he's just an incredibly brilliant guy, very intense. Uh, uh, if you were to meet him, you would think, Okay, this this guy isn't really exactly the most huggable and lovable guy in the world, but when you get to know him and you get to be around him, he's just a really really special man who's done such amazing things. And to have to be able to work with those people, plus Judd, who again is anyone in our generation doing what he's doing right now. So I mean, to work with four guys like that, I mean, it, it's like literally like the Holy Grail, and you got to work with them, and now again, you're working with yeah, some it's again. Been, it's been fantastic, and I, I I told again the Sequoia Capital partner, who is still the chairman of the company, I said to him, I said, if you came down to L.A. and did a thousand deals like you came down and did the deal with Will and Adam and Jimmy, if you came and did a thousand deals you would not do one with a better group of people for what both you wanted to get done from a business point of view, but also from working with and being with and, and being around. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons, also going back to the story, why did I end up doing it you know, in the first place, was because they are extraordinary people. Um, and, and again, that's why I sort of laugh when I'm sitting here doing things like this, and I know that um you know anybody else could be sitting here it has nothing to do with me it has to do with again being in the right place at the right time and with the right group of people and so from that if the you right place it, right time right group of people and the right person in the place at the right time there's a lot of people <laughs> there's a lot of people in the right place at the right time who can't deliver when they're in that place, you delivered. Yeah. So finally, what advice do you have for uh, a young executive trying to move up the ladder in any form of work? And then based on all the performers and all the artists that you've seen and you've worked with, what do you think it takes for a young artist to break through and become the next Judd Apatow, Adam McKay, Will Ferrell that you've seen and your travels. But in in both instances, I go back to what I said before. One, you, you have to be passionate about what you do. Um, 
as far as the talent, the the one characteristic you use the word that they all have, they're fearless. Um, that at many many points in their career, they did things where they could not be afraid to fail. If they had been, they would not have succeeded. And and all of them had those moments where where uh, there was no surety they were going to succeed at all. Um, and and that for young people not trying to follow a creative path, which is, by the way, I think much, much harder, that, that um, the, the difference between, you know, I, I have a cousin who's had a modest career as an actor, you know, and managed to eke out a living, literally, barely. And the difference between him and Brad Pitt is, is tiny, tiny. But whether it's the drive, the passion, the skill, a combination of all of them, you have to have them all to, to make it work. And somehow it seems in, in the business side of it, as opposed to the creative side of it, that you can, if you just really work hard and really care about what you're doing, and, you know, um, if you treat people appropriately, you'll do fine. And I keep saying, because we have a lot of young people who obviously work in the company, and and I say the same thing to all of them. I say, boy, right now at your age, the last thing in the world you should be thinking about is your paycheck. I mean, it's just, the, the, it doesn't matter. If somebody comes into me and, oh, gosh, I sure could use a raise. Yeah, we all could. And I'm not saying you don't deserve one. But I'm just saying, but, but the thing right now you just want to focus on doing the best at what you're doing and and whether that's producing videos whether that's acting or whether that's business affairs and accounting if you focus on it and if you're doing something you love then everything will take care of itself over time it just will and and trust the process um which is a expression you, the aforementioned Mike Ferrer uses <laughs> all the time, trust the process, but it's true. Um, and and certainly I've, I've been very, very lucky, and, and I keep saying, you know, I say to my wife all the time, God, I just hope the luck doesn't run out. We don't need too many more years just for the luck to not run out. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it will. If you're passionate and you work hard, it'll be fine. Well, this has been incredible. I've had an amazing time. Uh, you are very inspirational and the audience is going to really love this and you've had an incredible career and it's still going strong and it's going to continue Hopefully. for many, many years to come. I can feel it. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate Thank it. You. Thank All you. All right. Enjoy. You have been listening to another episode of Industry Standard. Uh, as usual, if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you didn't like the show, tell all your friends.
Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.